Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law, statutes, cases, old cases, new cases. What do you need to know if you're a Virginia law enforcement officer? And this is a podcast for those of you out there who want to do it right, who want to learn, who want to get better, who want to figure out how to better serve your communities and strengthen them. And this is something that I hope has been useful for you guys. I hope we're giving you information that's useful. We've talked about use of force. We talked about search and seizure. We talked about search warrants. Uh, we talked about, I think, a little bit about Miranda. We probably should get to that a little bit more. Um, we've been talking about all kinds of things that you might need to know. And today, we're going to be talking about a couple of new cases from the Virginia Courts of Appeals, a case on resisting arrest and a case on assault on law enforcement officer. And both cases sort of highlight a, an issue, a tension in the law that I think is worth exploring. Uh, the uh, resisting arrest case sort of uh, highlights the, the issue with people running from the police and that we don't consider running to be a crime, but uh, resisting is and obstruction is, but what is obstruction and so on. We're going to talk about that. And then this case uh, we're going to talk about with assault and law enforcement really deals with the issue of uh, law enforcement officers and trespassing people's right to property can they bar police from their property do you have to have a warrant to enter and so on so we're going to enter we're going to sort of explore those issues as well when we talk about those new cases because they're both really interesting cases from the court of appeals just in the last two weeks of course, we also have the special session going on right now, and one of the issues that the special session is tackling is criminal justice reform. And so we, it's been interesting to watch. Um, I think that both the Senate and the House have a different view of what they are planning to do during the session, how long the session is going to last, what their goals are going to be. So there's been some tension there, and we're still kind of trying to figure out what the process is going to be. Um, at least so far, when they've held committee hearings, it's been very difficult to get heard, uh, very difficult to sign up to say things, uh, to, to speak on bills. And so that's been an issue. Um, but I do want to talk to you about a little bit about uh, what has happened so far. Um, I, we haven't had anything really substantive pass uh, from either the Senate or the House. But some interesting bills have come up and have failed, and that's sort of interesting to talk about, I guess. Uh, there were some proposals uh, from Senator Normant and Senator Reeves to increase the penalty for assault on a law enforcement officer. Both of those failed. There are certainly proposals to reduce the penalty for law enforcement officer, and those are still pending. We don't know what will happen with those. Uh, there were some proposals from Senator Newman and from Senator Eb um, uh, Senator Newman and I think Senator Stanley to. Uh, to prohibit collective bargaining by law enforcement officers. So there were bills, uh, there was a bill last year that um, that required localities to recognize collective bargaining by local uh, employees, but this bill would say, no, when it comes to law enforcement officers, you don't have a right to unionize, uh, and both, and the Senate rejected uh, both Senator Stanley and Senator Newman's attempts to do that. Uh, another bill that failed were um, were that, that that didn't make it through were requirements by Senator McDougal and Senator Reeves to require the reporting within 48 hours to DCJS if an officer law enforcement officer is placed on a Brady list, and you might hear this word get tossed around. I did want to take a minute to explain what a Brady list is. Because there's some confusion about it. I mean, not every office, not every locality has a Brady list, but a Brady list is a basically 
it's a term that is used when a prosecutor's office has a list um, of people, of officers, that they don't think that they can put on the witness stand because they don't trust those officers to tell the truth anymore. Maybe because those officers deceived the prosecutors or because they were found by a court to have deceived a court or for some other reason. Uh, they're put on a list by the prosecutors and say, we're not going to call this officer as a witness. Now, of course, what that means, if you're not going to call as a witness, is there's not a whole lot for you to do as a law enforcement officer. Um, and I guess you could sit behind a desk and do something at the police department and do accreditation or something. But, you know, you're not going to be able to go out and, uh, and, and do law enforcement duties if the, poli- if the prosecutor's office isn't going to call you as a witness. So what's happened is in a lot of localities, if you get put on a Brady list, that basically means the end of your job. But that's a Brady list in that locality. So you could go to another locality, and if that locality didn't know about you being on the Brady list or wasn't concerned or didn't have you on their list, then uh, you could still get a job and work there. Now, of course, there's a couple of issues here. One is some localities don't have Brady lists. They don't even know what they don't even need them. There's only a couple of prosecutors. They know who they trust and who they don't trust. Um, there's no requirement that prosecutors have a Brady list. A lot of officers don't have a Brady list. And of course, another issue that you know, obviously the General Assembly may not be concerned about, but you might be concerned about is, okay, but what if I got put on the list for something that I didn't do? In other words, the prosecutor accused me of lying to them or deceiving them, but I didn't lie. I didn't deceive them. The prosecutor was wrong. Uh, how do you grieve that, right? I mean, you can't really grieve that. It's a, it's a prosecutor's office. They have the list. They have this, they decided to put you on it. And now, not only can you not be hired in that jurisdiction, you can't be hired anywhere. I mean, anywhere in Virginia, because now the DCGS is basically decertifying you based on the word of some prosecutor somewhere who put you on a list. And, and you may not even know why you're on the list. There's no requirement that you find out why you're on the list. You just find out one day, you're on the list. Why? Well, we're not going to tell you. Well, who told, put me on the list? Why do they put me on the list? I don't know. There's no, re- there's no requirement that anybody put you, tell you why you're on this list. So it's an interesting issue. Um, right, the word Brady list, this idea of Brady list is kind of being tossed around the General Assembly. I don't know if it's going to end up in any bills, but these two bills failed. These two bills did not go forward. Uh, Senator McDougall's bill as well. Um, and then uh, there's a Marcus Alert bill that did not go forward, um, but. Uh, there, there's another Marcus Alert bill. And if you don't know what a Marcus Alert bill is, kind of creating these crisis, community crisis response teams to work with people who are having mental health crisis. And so that's still going to finance the proposal on that. So we'll see what comes through that. Um, obviously, a lot, of, a lot of things are being tossed around, but I don't really want to talk about things until they really become law. So let's talk about what actual law is, uh, what actually does apply, and what actually has been announced as real law. And two cases I want to highlight today. One is Peters versus Commonwealth, which is a case from August 4th from the Court of Appeals, and that's a published case. And then Carter versus Commonwealth, which is an August 20th case, and that's an unpublished case. So let's first of all talk about Peters versus Commonwealth. And this is a case that's all about the resisting arrest code section. The facts of the case are, uh, this is a case where the defendant made an illegal U-turn, he nearly crashed into another car, he ran a red light, he sped off. So an officer pursued him, uh, the defendant, and then another officer showed up, the defendant collided with a police car that showed up on the scene, and then got out of his car. Uh, the officer drew his firearm and yelled, stop, show me your hands. At that point, the officer switched to his taser, the defendant took off running, and the officer chased him. The officer kept yelling out at him, saying, taser, 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 and the defendant kept running, so the officer used the taser, the defendant fell, and the officer restrained him. 
Now, at trial, the defendant was convicted of a bunch of different crimes, obviously. One of the crimes he got convicted of was uh, essentially the what we call kind of resisting arrest. And this is a weird code section, so I want to talk about it for a second. It's moved around in the code. It used to be in 19.2, which is not even a place that you put crimes. It's a, it's a criminal procedure code section. And we called it resisting arrest, but it wasn't really resisting arrest, and you'll see why in a second. Then we moved it a couple of years ago to the obstruction code section. So now it's 18.2460E. And this is what the code section says. It says that any person who intentionally prevents or attempts to prevent a law enforcement officer from lawfully arresting him, arresting the, the person, this is the person doing the, the resisting, with or without a warrant is guilty of a class one misdemeanor. So what does it mean to prevent or attempt to prevent a law enforcement officer? Well, would it prevent from arresting you? Well, what it means is um, fleeing from an officer when the officer applies physical force to the person, or it means fleeing, it also means fleeing from an officer when the officer communicates to the person that he's under arrest and the officer has legal authority and the immediate physical ability to place the person under arrest. And in addition to that, under the circumstances where a reasonable person who receives the communication knows or should know that he's not free to leave. Okay, so in other words, if you're walking through a cornfield and way across the other side of the cornfield, you see somebody who you, you know, know as a warrant or whatever, and you yell out and you say, hey, you're under arrest. And the person's like, what? And you say, ah, you're under arrest. And the person's like, oh, I don't really want to be around the police right now. So they take off running. That person wouldn't be guilty because the officer didn't have the immediate uh, physical ability to place the person under arrest. They had the legal authority to do it, but they didn't have the immediate, immediate physical ability. The person was too far away. And in addition, there's an argument the reasonable person may not know they're not free to leave because they're, you know, they're so far away or something like that. So anyway, so he gets this charge. The defendant, uh, Peters, and this is in Buena Vista, uh, gets this charge. And he makes the argument at trial that the officer did not have the immediate physical ability to place him under arrest. In other words, here in this case, he's running away from the officer. The officer's yelling, taser, taser, taser. But at no point does he actually touch the defendant. He never puts his hands on him. He's just running and chasing and chasing and chasing. And then when he hits him with the taser, of course, then the guy goes to the ground and the officer puts him in handcuffs. Um, but the officers, the court, the trial court convicts the defendant and the defendant appeals. So a couple of things to note about this before we talk about the issue that Peters talks about. Um, first of all, Peters never argues that in this case that the officer didn't tell him he was under arrest. That's not an issue that comes up in the case, but we're going to talk about that in a second. The other thing that Peters doesn't argue is he doesn't argue whether he has whether the officer has the legal authority to place him under arrest. Okay, so in other words, he's required to communicate to the defendant that he's under arrest, but Peters doesn't argue that. He's required to have legal authority to place Peters under arrest, but Peters doesn't argue that. And for good reason. I mean, the officer clearly has probable cause to arrest him. He's done a lot of bad things. And he doesn't argue whether he has, whether he knows or should know that he's not free to leave. That's not an argument he raises. His argument is basically focused on the officer doesn't have the physical ability to put him under arrest. And, um, and so he says, because that's missing, then, uh, then we don't get a conviction in this case. Now, I want to back up for a second and talk about then what the point of this is, what the point of this code section is, why it exists, and what it's trying to address before we talk about the result in this case. You see, what, what's been going on in Virginia law for a long time is this issue of an obstruction. I've talked about it. I've talked about obstruction in this podcast before. 
and when I've talked about it in the context, especially of possession of marijuana and what happens after you know, what happened after we went to a civil offense from possession of marijuana, what happens if somebody refused to identify themselves when you're required to release them on a summons? One of the things that's clear under Virginia law is that simply running from the police is not obstruction of justice, is not classic obstruction of justice, what we understand to be obstruction of justice, which is to say uh, the sort of uh, obstructing a per- an officer under 18.2460A or 18.2460B. And a good example of this is the Atkins case, and this is a case from 2009 from the Court of Appeals where the defendant was convicted of obstruction under 18.2460A. It's a case where an officer saw uh, it stopped a defendant for a traffic violation. The defendant kept driving, um, and then at that point, then he parked. Um, the officer ran his uh, his tag. He found the defendant was driving a stolen vehicle. Uh, the officer told uh, the defendant told another officer, "Hey, detain him." But the but the Mr. Atkins took off running into the woods, uh, and they had to spend like four hours looking for him. Um, the Court of Appeals reversed the defendant's conviction for obstruction because the court found that obstruction of justice doesn't occur when a person fails to cooperate fully with an officer or when the person's conduct merely renders the officer's task more difficult or frustrates the investigation. And so the court wrote here, an accused hiding or seeking to escape an officer by merely running away is not an obstruction of justice under the law. Okay, so simply running away. If you don't, you know, obviously if he ran away and he, uh, you know, ran into a shed and locked the door of the shed and that prevented the officer from getting inside or ran inside a car and locked the doors of the car, did something to actually physically prevent the officer from doing his job, that would be obstruction. But here, right, that's not sufficient. So that's where the court then comes up with this uh, resisting arrest code section. Now, it, this is not resisting detention, right? If you're trying to lawfully detain somebody in an investigative detention, like a Terry stop, this code section is not going to apply. This only applies when you have the lawful authority to arrest somebody. You have probable cause and the ability to do so, or you've actually physically applied force to the person um, and a reasonable person would understand they're not free to go or not, not free to leave. Um, and, and so and then, they, and then they run away, they flee. That's what this code section, this relatively new code section tries to capture. And again, they put it in 19.2. That didn't really work. It was bizarre that they put it there. So they moved it to 18.2 E. And that's Mr. Peters. That brings to Mr. Peters's case. So the court in this case then rules that the conviction was appropriate, that the trial court, uh, was correct to convict the defendant because the officer did have the immediate physical ability to place him under arrest under these facts. The um, note again, the court here points out that the, you know, the defendant is running away, but the officer is right there behind him. He's got the taser. He's warning him, I'm going to use a taser. So just the, you know, the fact that he's within that range of the defendant um, to take him into custody did, uh, was sufficient under this code section to convict him. The other thing that's interesting about this case, and one of the reasons why I'm really interested in this case, is remember Peters never makes the argument uh, in this case that the officer had failed to communicate to him that he was under arrest. And he doesn't make that argument, but it is true in this case. I mean, the officer never says, you are under arrest. And the Court of Appeals noticed that and said, you know, that's not really an issue for us to decide in this case, but we're just pointing out the officer never said to the defendant, you're under arrest. And yet, the court said, uh, 
in this case, the officer sufficiently communicated to the defendant, essentially in so many words, that he was under arrest, right? What does the defendant say to the, to the suspect in this case, right? He, he, after the defendant crashes into the police car, gets out of his car, the officer draws his firearm, he says, stop, show me your hands. Then the officer switches to his taser, the defendant runs away, the officer chases him and keeps yelling, taser, taser, taser. And so in this case, the court in a footnote says, you know, even though the officer didn't say arrest, a lot of courts in other states have said that an officer doesn't magically have to use the word arrest to communicate to somebody that he's actually under arrest. And that probably in this case, they probably would have found that the officer sufficiently communicated to him that he was under arrest. But, you know, why make it hard for yourself? Why make it complicated? Why not simply just make it easy and say, hey, you're under arrest, and then you've got the elements of this code section. And then you've checked that box, so to speak. So it's always better to communicate to somebody that they're under arrest if uh, you think you might be ending up bringing this charge. And, and obviously that might not be the, force, the first thing on your mind when, you know, you're in the middle, if somebody's just crashed into your car and jumping out and running away and you're sitting there, you know, running after the person and trying to keep up with them and, you know, trying to radio your position and make sure you're safe and make sure that your officers know where you are and make sure this doesn't, guy doesn't shoot you. And, oh, by the way, you need to orally say the word arrest, Matt, you know, to get this code section. I mean, I know that's not a huge priority for you, but uh, but it is something important to the court. Um, so you might ask then, well, how is it in this case that the off that, that Peters chooses to focus on this issue about the ability to um, take him into custody. And I want to talk about Joseph versus Commonwealth, which is another case under this code section, because that was a case where an officer, a guy again, refused to comply with an officer's commands to put his hands behind his back. And in fact, struggle with the officer, backed up from the officer, but he never ran away. And because he never runs away, the court says, well, if you don't actually flee, you can't be guilty of this code section fleeing from a law enforcement officer. So be careful. We know we call this code section resisting arrest because we don't really know what else to call it, but it's not resisting arrest. I mean, somebody using force to prevent you from arresting you, arresting them, that's really obstruction of justice impeding under 18.2460B. It's impeding with force uh, or maybe passive obstruction or 18.2460A, but it's not this code section. It's not 18.2460E. It's not fleeing from a law enforcement officer. So even though in Joseph's, Mr. Joseph was struggling with the officer, which prevented the officer from taking him into custody, arresting him, the court said that wasn't sufficient because you actually have to flee to be guilty under this code section. So bottom line is if a person's uh, under arrest and they know they're under arrest and they're fleeing, they're running away, that's, that's this code section. This is fleeing from a law enforcement officer, 18.2460E. If the person is obstructing you is stopping you from doing what you're doing under A or B, that's that's really obstruction or impeding under 18.2460A or B. All right, the other case I want to talk about today is Carter versus Commonwealth. And Carter sort of dances around a really complicated issue in Virginia and one that's very, uh, I think it's important for officers to know about. Be aware that I'm not going to give you an answer because there isn't a clear answer under Virginia law yet. Uh, but there are some important cases to know about, and one of them is this case, but one of them also is another case we're going to call Diffendall. So what happens in Carter? So Carter responds to a 911 call, uh, gets to the house, finds a disorderly situation. Um, the door is open to her house. She's in inside the front door of her house. There's people on her porch. Um, the officer's trying to figure out if there's a crime that's occurred. 
and it looks like maybe there's been a fight or some kind of argument or something. It's, you know, again, it's just sort of chaos. Instead of cooperating with the officer, though, the defendant herself, she tries to shut the door to her house and go inside the house. The officer try, wants to have contact with her, though, so he uh, continues to walk towards and actually steps into the threshold of her house. The defendant slams the door on his foot multiple times, um, and the officer grabs her, puts her in handcuffs. She starts to resist. She starts to fight the officer. He tries to get her under control. Um, she elbows him, hits him in the chest, hits him in the arm, and she's convicted of assault on a law enforcement officer. So there's three arguments that she has. She says one is, look, I'm defending my house. The officer didn't have a warrant. He didn't have a right to enter my house. He's a trespasser. I'm using reasonable force to expel a trespasser. The second thing she argues is that the officer was not acting within the scope of his duties uh, and therefore he, I, can't, I was not assault and battering him. In other words, he was acting outside the scope of what he was lawfully allowed to do. And I was resisting an illegal arrest. He wasn't entitled to arrest me. And so therefore I was justified in striking this officer. Now the Court of Appeals uh, rejects all three arguments. First of all, she, the, they, they look at the trespassing issue and they reject that argument. Second of all, they say the officer was acting within the scope of his duties. And third was uh, the, she was not entitled to use force to attack the officer. So I'm going to go through those backwards because the really interesting question is the first question. Um, so let's deal with the last one first. Okay, so the court says the defendant was not permitted to physically attack the officer, to assault the officer, when he's simply trying to detain her. Remember, he's not placing her under arrest. He's detaining her. Under Virginia law, you have the lawful right to resist an unlawful defense, uh, unlawful arrest. If the police are trying to arrest you unlawfully, you can resist that uh, arrest with reasonable force. And if the police use physical force against you, you can use physical force against the police. There's a case called Foot versus Commonwealth where the police uh, try to unlawfully arrest somebody and they pull a gun on the guy. The guy pulls a gun in response. The police shoot at him. He shoots back. And the court says, Virginia Supreme Court says, he had the right to do that. That arrest was unlawful. They used deadly force. He's entitled to respond with deadly force. So, you know, there are statutes out there, you know, in other states that people have passed and so on that say you have the right to resist law enforcement. That's the law in Virginia, according to the courts of Virginia, since the 1980s. But you don't have the lawful right to use force to resist an unlawful detention. Isn't that strange? But the court says, you know, an arrest is the police putting handcuffs on you and throwing you back a police car and transporting you and taking you away and putting you in jail. And that's pretty serious. But detention is only a temporary de deprivation of your liberty, and we're not going to give people the right to use force to simply resolve arguments about whether or not they should be temporarily detained on the street. That's going to lead to violence. We don't like that idea. So there is no recognized right in Virginia to use force to, to resist an unlawful detention. So here, even if the officer was unlawfully detaining her at the front door of her house, it doesn't matter. She wasn't entitled to use force. And that's all he was doing at that stage was just detaining her to do his investigation. And he was doing his investigation. The court found that he was doing investigation. He was trying to talk to her about what was going on outside, and she was not talking to him. So it was in the course of his duties. But that sort of begs the interesting question here, and that's the first question, which is, did she have the right to use force to expel a trespasser? Now, in Virginia, a landowner is allowed to use force to expel a trespasser 
as long as you have told the trespasser that they have to leave. In other words, you can't surprise a trespasser. You can't, you know, if somebody's trespassing in your property, you can't jump on them, tackle them, put them in handcuffs and drag them off without having asked them first to leave. If you ask them to leave and they refuse to leave, then you're entitled to use reasonable force to cause that person to leave. And that reasonable force, by the way, can include up to the threat of deadly force or potentially deadly force. Um, we do have a castle doctrine in Virginia. It's an ancient doctrine, but it's been around since at least the 1920s when the courts officially recognized it in a published case, um, that if somebody is in your on your property and you want them out and you've used reasonable force to get them out and they uh, threaten you or there's a threat to your life, you're entitled, you don't have to retreat, you're entitled to use up to potentially deadly force if you're faced with a deadly situation or a threat of serious bodily injury uh, to repel a trespasser in your home. You don't have to retreat away from that. It's your home. It's your castle, basically. Um, so we've had that castle doctrine, again, recognized by the courts, not by statute, by the courts in Virginia for a long time. The question is, how does that apply to a police? And that brings us to this interesting case called Diffendahl versus Commonwealth. Now, Diffendahl versus Commonwealth is a case uh, from the Virginia Court of Appeals, and it's been a it's a case that's been around um, for a long time. It's been around since 1989, but the facts of it are very interesting. So the officer goes on to Diffendahl's property, and the officer is wearing a gun. She um, Diffendahl jumps out from behind a bunch of trees and points the gun at her and says, "This is private property," and the officer responds, "I know, but I'm looking for this lady named Donna." And Divendal says, I don't know who you are. Identify yourself. Um, the officer keeps asking about, you know, hey, look, I'm looking for this person. Um, Diffendahl says, look, I've told the police before, don't come on this property. I don't want you on this property. Um, she can see, the officer can see that this officer, excuse me, Diffendahl can see that she's wearing a gun. And the officer's clearly wearing a gun. Um, Diffendahl lowers the gun. Um, but says, again, here, like, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want you out here without a warrant. Um, and um, so he walks the officer back up to the officer's car. And um, ultimately, they um, are charged Diffendahl with brandishing a firearm at a law enforcement officer. And Diffendahl says, I was entitled to point my gun at the police because this person was a trespasser and they and this person posed a threat to me, the person carried a gun, and therefore I was entitled to threaten them with a gun. And the court says uh, here again, he's threatening the deadly force, he's not using deadly force, uh, but the court agrees that in this case, under the circumstances, the threat of deadly force was not in its mind excessive. Um, the officer was a trespasser in the eyes of the court. The officer was not entitled to be there. The officer was asked to leave. The officer had no warrant. Um, and so the officer had a reason to be there, um, but the um, defendant had asked him to leave and the officer didn't have a warrant. So um, the officer was a trespasser in the eyes of the court. So here the officer is uh, armed and Mr. Diffendahl is all alone by himself on his property. So the court did not, the court found that it wasn't unreasonable for him to brandish that gun to cause the officer to leave the property. So, you know, the factual issue here in the case, the court never decided that uh, Diffendahl was not guilty of brandishing, but they remanded the case back for retrial to allow Diffendahl to make the argument that his actions were uh, reasonable and the conviction was reversed. 
So that brings us back to this issue here in this case, which was, you know, this officer at the front door of um, Ms. Carter's house. The officer doesn't have the lawful authority to enter the house. It's not an exigent circumstance. He doesn't have her consent uh, and he doesn't have a warrant. So he's taking her into custody at the threshold, right at the door of her house. She's not, he's not really, I mean, he steps his foot into the house. He grabs her, he pulls her outside. So he is in a sense entering her house. He is in a sense a trespasser. Uh, the court dodges the entire issue though and says, well, you know, the common law right of a landowner to expel a trespasser is contingent on the landowner ordering the trespasser to leave her property. And so she wasn't exercising her rights because she had never ordered the officer to leave and therefore uh, never got to the issue of her common law right to resist the trespasser. But the more interesting question that this court, this case does not answer, that it sort of dodges is, where are we in Virginia law when an officer is lawfully on the scene, right? He's lawfully dispatched to a scene of a fight to a disorder. And he's there on the property, he's investigating, and the landowner, the person on the property, says, leave, I want you off my property. Can the officer stay? Does the officer have to get a warrant? Um, here, the officer is out on the porch, but that's within the curtilage, right? That's within the space that is treated to be the home. So it's essentially the home for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. Um, is there an exigent circumstance that would permit the officer to stay on the scene? And here, we didn't get a lot of details about the nature of the disorder. What was going on? Was there a threat to safety? Was somebody in danger? What was the 911 call? We just don't get any of that information in this case because the court says, you know, we don't really need that information. Um, there is no trespassing issue here because she just says, she just, you know, refuses to cooperate with the officer and, and the officer tries to talk to her and he, she goes to slam the door when he steps in and he slams the door on her foot and that's an, obviously a battery. And the officer is trying to detain her to continue to investigate. And then the fight is on and she starts elbowing him. But it begs this fundamental question that really we don't have a good answer to in Virginia law, which is, um, you know, what do you do if you respond to that scene? Let's say it's a domestic call um, and, you know, both parties are there. A neighbor has called because the neighbor says, you know, um, uh, the neighbor says, you know, I'm hearing yelling next door. You get up there. Both people are calm and both people say, I need you off my property. You need to leave right now. I think a common response would be to say, well, I'm not going to leave until I've determined that both of you all are safe. But at this point, keep in mind, you know, you are out. Let's say you're at the front door of the house. You know, you're on their property. They're telling you to leave the property. Are you a trespasser or do you have an exigent circumstance that permits you to stay there on that property? That's a difficult question to answer and it's very fact specific. But if you're going to have an exigent circumstance, you better be able to explain what the concern was in this case that made you believe that someone's in danger. Because there are these cases like Diffendall out there uh, that are going to say that the person has a right to use force to expel you as a trespasser. Um, and, uh, and they're definitely a concern. So um, we could talk more about this, you know, at length and maybe we will in another future podcast. But for now, that's just food for thought. Um, that's what I got for you guys. I hope you find the podcast interesting. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, but that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Uh, stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>